Well, I'd like you to turn back, please, to that passage which we read from John's Gospel, John 20, verse 19 to verse 31, and the story, really, of Thomas and and Thomas's encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fairly well known, I'm sure, but maybe you haven't heard it before, or you've heard about doubting Thomas and that sort of phrase, and uh, this is the first time that you've actually heard that passage from the Bible. And if that is the case for you this morning, well, that's a great and a wonderful thing. The news of Jesus's resurrection is at the heart of orthodox Christian belief. Paul, writing his letter to the church at Rome, begins his account in Romans chapter 1 by speaking about what he calls the gospel of God, God's good news for us as men and women and boys and girls. And in those opening verses in Romans chapter 1, he speaks about how the Son of God, Jesus, has been declared with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Why should you take Jesus Christ seriously this morning? Why should you take Christianity seriously? Maybe like something on the Antiques Roadshow, it's been tucked away in the back of your mind all of your life. You know it's possibly of some significance, but really it's not really had any impact on your life. Why should you take Jesus Christ seriously? Well, the great answer that the Christian scriptures give us is the resurrection. Paul, writing another letter to the church at Corinth in Greece, speaks very powerfully in the 15th chapter as he summarizes the whole of the Christian gospel with these words. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And then crucial, Paul adds, he was seen. He appeared. In that very same chapter, Paul goes on to remind us that if Christ had not been raised, faith is futile and we are still in our sins. The news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead is the hope and reassurance of the Christian life. Again, Paul, writing to the church at Rome in the 8th chapter, tells us that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's one of the most staggering statements, I think, in that letter. That the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now is the hope and reassurance in Christian living. And of course, the resurrection is the comfort for the Christian in death. We've been reminded this week that irrespective of your social standing or your reputation in life, one out of one human beings faces death. But the Christian believer faces death in the comfort of the news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus arriving 
at a village called Bethany where one of his great friends had recently died, meets a scene of overwhelming grief and sorrow. And one of the sisters of the man who's been buried comes out to greet him and a little conversation develops. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. It's a staggering claim, isn't it? It's the great comfort for the Christian facing death. That even though we die, we shall live. On what basis? On the news and the power of the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection dominates the landscape of Christian thinking and theology. And it is to dominate our living as well. Because it means today that this news, that Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead, it means that now we live in a world where there is more hope, more comfort available for us as struggling sinful human beings than we can ever, ever imagine. And frankly, sometimes as Christians, we should be far more filled with confidence and joy and zest for life because of the resurrection than often we are. One theologian put it this way, reflecting on Easter. Easter, he said, ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our worship? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply a one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's a pretty dramatic way of putting it. I think he's right. The news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead is overwhelmingly glorious news. It brings joy to the believer. In our reading, we're told that in verse 20 that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Some translations put it they were overjoyed. Interestingly, it's the very same word that's used of the wise men when they saw the star. They were overjoyed. And it's the same word that we're told that the Christian believer, when they come into the glory of heaven, will be overjoyed as well. Friends, it's the reminder that when we encounter the risen Christ, when our hearts and minds are focused on him, there is deep, overwhelming, profound joy. Now, in a way, a lot of what I've said is a very, very powerful, isn't it? Here is the energy for living as a Christian. Here is the comfort in the face of death. 
Here is the heart of the Christian belief. And, and many of the hymns that we have and we sing at Easter about the resurrection are full of triumph and power. And it's very impressive and it's very wonderful to be caught up in times when we can worship like that. But it is also of huge pastoral significance that as the news of the resurrection is gently broken to Jesus' disciples, it is received in contexts of sorrow and distress. The initial hearing of the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead becomes the profoundest of comforts to anxious, concerned people. Mary Magdalene, bewildered by grief. Thomas, as we see here this morning, unbelieving and confused. Peter, burdened with shame and regret. The couple on the road to uh, Emmaus, similarly confused, disappointed. It's fascinating that the, the story of the news of Jesus' resurrection, that as it's broken in the Gospels, it's the primary way in which it is presented is it is presented to troubled and disturbed people. It's not announced by a fanfare of trumpets and angelic choirs. It doesn't come in a bombastic way. It doesn't come in a great statement of overwhelming power and triumph. Other parts of the New Testament may do that. But the actual breaking of the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead comes to disturbed, troubled people. I wonder about you this morning. Maybe you're disturbed and troubled. The things that have been happening in our world in this last year or so. The way in which everything's been turned upside down has exposed things to you about the frailty of life and its uncertainty. Or maybe there's just the stuff that goes on inside of you that nobody else knows anything about. And the more you live your life, the more troubling it becomes. Who was Thomas? Well, he's mentioned four times in John's Gospel. And a kind of identikit picture emerges about this man. The first, actually, we read of was that moment when Jesus went to that village called Bethany where his friend Lazarus had died, where he stated, I am the resurrection and the life. Just before they got there, Jesus spoke of going there and the disciples were a bit concerned because there was increasing hostility towards Jesus. And we read in John 11 that Thomas who is called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. He made the assumption that the journey to Bethany was extremely dangerous and that Jesus might be killed. And yet at the same time, Thomas shows a measure of leadership and boldness. Let us also go, that we may die with him. He is loyal and the beginning of this service, I read those words from John 14, taken from that incident on the very night Jesus was betrayed by Judas, meeting together in that upper room, that wonderful context of brotherly friendship and love. And as Jesus is there, uh, 
He speaks about going and leaving. And I don't think any of the disciples understood it. They didn't have a clue what he was on about. And yet, wonderfully, it is Thomas who has the honesty and the boldness to say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? It's a very sensible question, isn't it? Not lack of faith, but the desire for clarity. Third mention is here in this chapter, and the fourth one is in the following chapter, chapter 21, where he's just mentioned by name alongside the other disciples. So when you put all that together, you get a picture of Thomas, don't you? I think probably he was a quiet, thoughtful, maybe slightly gloomy man, but a man who is very committed to Jesus and a man who has a desire for truth. Now in our chapter, which we read in John 20, remarkable things happen. The setting is the evening of the day when Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples, we're told in verse 19, are together with the doors locked because of fear of the Jews. What caused that fear? We're not entirely clear. Maybe it was the news that Jesus' body was missing, the confusion that went with that. There was a concern that maybe there would be hostility directed towards him, rather towards them. After all, there'd been huge hostility towards Jesus, which had resulted in his crucifixion. So they meet together and they bolt the doors. Nobody's supposed to get in. Except Jesus does. It's amazing, isn't it? The story breaks down into three clear parts, which we read. The first really is Jesus and the disciples. He appears. He enters into this locked room. It's entirely mysterious and miraculous. And if you do have problems with that, let me take you right back to the beginning of John's Gospel, where he wants us to be clear in the very first chapter about one great thing about Jesus of Nazareth. And it's simply this, he's God. Do you know when you really get that? All the miracles, whether it's walking on water, turning water into wine, raising the dead, or entering a locked room like this mysteriously, suddenly make absolute sense. And as he arrives, we're told he said to the disciples, peace be with you. Something has happened that has changed the world. So that now the coming of Christ is the announcement of peace. It was announced at his birth by the angels to the shepherds. Peace on earth, goodwill to all men. A prophecy, really, of what would be possible now through his death and resurrection. And here the Prince of Peace comes and he says to these troubled, fearful individuals, Peace be with you. And immediately he showed them his hands and his sides. It's recorded by John in a very particular way. It's a very physical appearance. There is no doubt as to who Jesus is. It is physical. It is tactile. He hasn't just been raised in the imagination of his disciples. But he has been physically raised from the dead. And as he speaks to the disciples, he has important things for them to hear. He commissions them. 
As the Father has sent me, verse 21, even so I am sending you. He enables them, verse 22, with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he delegates authority to them in verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of others, they are retained. Here is the separating, the commissioning, the enabling, the delegating of authority to the apostles who will be so significant in the early church. Well, it was a wonderful occasion, wasn't it? For the disciples, apart from the fact that Thomas wasn't there, which is the second little component of this story. You need to remember, these are a very close group of men. They've been together for over three years. And so we read in verse 15 that when Thomas enters the room, they, they can hardly contain themselves. They say, we've seen the Lord. It's good news, Thomas. Shame you weren't here, but, but he's come, he's here. We have seen the Lord. They weren't expecting it. Which, of course, Thomas replies, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Unless I see his hands, the prints of his nail, the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. He needs hard evidence. I need to see his hands. Put my finger. Put my hand. The whole thing is volitional. Until this happens, I will not believe. There's a stubbornness now. This has a particular resonance, doesn't it, in our 21st years. Thomas would fit in very well today. He's a man of reason. He's a man who requires evidence. And in many ways, Thomas is to be commended here. He won't give in to peer pressure. Oh, if you all say it happened, I suppose it must have done. He doesn't do that. He has his own need to be satisfied in his own reasoning, in his own understanding, in his own experience before he will commit himself to believe. He's not simply going to go along with the crowd. And I think for that he is to be commended. He is searching for an honest response. But those words are rather chilling, aren't they? I will not believe. Now I wonder this morning if that's you. Maybe you feel under a bit of pressure to go along with the crowd. Maybe you're brought up, you're part of a Christian family. And everybody's a Christian and you, you're kind of willing to say, well, I, I suppose I am. And you, you know how to say the right things in the right way at the right time. But deep down inside, there is a stubbornness. I think Thomas wanted to believe. He loved the Lord. But he will not believe. Because there is something deep within him which is preventing him from believing. I don't know about you, I, I can't imagine the tension that there must have been between Thomas and the disciples. John says it went on for eight days. Eight days. Look, come on, Thomas. We really did see him. 
yeah, I hear what you say, but unless I see it for myself, I will not believe. Maybe some of them became very impatient with Thomas. Come on, Thomas, the evidence is overwhelming. Are you calling us liars? Are you saying we're deluded? Are you saying you're the only one who's right? Some would have tried to persuade him. Some would have lost patience with him. Until that third component of the story, which of course is Jesus and Thomas. Thomas has everything he needs to believe within his grasp, doesn't he? He actually heard Jesus prophesy the whole thing. Luke records it in Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. I mean, he'd heard it. He'd heard Jesus talk about this. And he has the accounts of his friends, but he needs something more than this. And it's at that point maybe you identify with Thomas. Oh, you've heard these things for years. People have tried to persuade you. People have tried to encourage you to believe. And they've really meant well. Some maybe have even been a little exasperated with you. But like Thomas, you need something more than this. What does Thomas need? And what do you need? Well, it's the same thing. He needs to meet with Christ himself. And so wonderfully, after eight days, which must have been extremely difficult days for Thomas and probably for the other disciples, Jesus appears among them again with the same greeting. There in verse 26, peace be to you. And then he turns to Thomas. Come on then. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. But Thomas doesn't need to do that. The effect on seeing Christ is profound. And Thomas presents us with one of the clearest statements in the New Testament about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. Doesn't say it in the text, but you can just imagine him falling on his knees before Christ. He sees the risen Christ. Now, what does this mean for us? And you might be here this morning, watching online, and you say, well, that must have been so wonderful for Thomas, but that isn't going to happen to me, is it? It's highly unlikely that I'm going to see the risen Christ in the way in which Thomas did. So does this account, does this story really help me in any way? Well, I think it does. Let me remind you that the, the news of Jesus' resurrection comes first in the Gospels to people in spiritual, emotional and mental distress. That the whole posture of Jesus Christ towards us is one of compassion and mercy. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is not a hard taskmaster. He is not an analyst of human behavior and character. He's not like some divine speed camera only interested in bursting into life when we sin. No, 
His whole heart is towards us. His whole nature is full of compassion towards us in our struggles and in our difficulties. I love that great Easter hymn that includes that line, Lo, Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovingly he greets us, scatters fear and gloom. That's what he loves to do, by the way. To scatter fear and gloom. Is that you this morning? Are you fearful? Full of gloom? Christ delights to scatter it and dispel it. Now Thomas's great issue was doubt. And it's a reminder that doubt can be a huge paralyzing problem to us. The humility with which the way in which the Lord Jesus offers his hands and says, put your finger, it's what you want to do. If this is what it's going to take, Thomas, stick your finger through the holes. He meets Thomas in his point of unbelief with such intentional compassion and concern. The lovely thing is that Well, the trauma, if we can call it that this morning, of doubt, which can be so powerful sometimes. Wonderfully, we never find the Lord Jesus standing at one side, observing us in our struggles with doubt, with his arms folded, kind of saying, who would have thought this of you? He doesn't do that with Thomas, does he? He doesn't enter the room saying, Thomas, Thomas, you had eight days. And you still couldn't work it out. No, he meets Thomas in his unbelief and in his struggles with doubt. We're not very good as Christians at speaking about doubt, are we? Because the reality is there are times when doubt may come upon you as a Christian, even if you're not a Christian this morning. The Christian life is not a neat, continual line of faith. It's It has its ups, it has its downs, its highs, its lows. If you want something neat and continual, go join a cult. The problem is we're often not very honest about our doubt. We feel somehow we're letting the side down or we're letting the Lord down. You know, previous generations never had a problem with this. They wrote, they talked. They spoke often about the struggle that sometimes Christians can have with doubt. The very fact that this incident is here with Thomas is helpful to us. You've probably, most of you have read, if you haven't read it, you've heard of it, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It was written as an allegory of the Christian life, a story to show the kind of struggles and difficulties that a Christian has in the Christian life, written in 1678. Bunyan understood the gritty reality of the Christian's experience of the Christian life. So in that allegory, he writes about the power of the attractiveness of sin, as he speaks about vanity fair, or the destructive reality of depression, as he speaks about the slough of despond. But inevitably, Bunyan writes in Pilgrim's Progress about doubt. And he writes about it spectacularly and really helpfully in which he pictures this man who's on the journey, the pilgrim making his progress, who is called Christian. And there he is with his companion, whose name is Hopeful. And they find themselves prisoners in an evil, 
gloomy, terrible place called Doubting Castle. And the despair that comes upon Christian and his friend is such that Bunyan records them feeling that they felt their only way would be forthwith to make an end of themselves. They felt suicidal under the pressure of doubt and the inward struggles they were having. But in that condition, they seek to encourage one another and they pray. And as they were praying in the story, we read these remarkable words. This is what Bunyan wrote. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out suddenly into this passionate speech. What a fool I have been, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And that's exactly what happens. And he is lifted out of his doubt. As at every locked door they come to this key, which he has on his chest, and he, it opens every single locked door. And the key is called the promises of God. The Puritans, of which Bunyan was one, uh, wrote often on this subject, reminding us as Christians that when we fall into times of difficulty, of unbelieving and of doubt, and we embrace all the miseries that go with that, the Puritans used to speak of desertions, the soul's winter time. One chap, Joseph Simmons, even wrote a whole book on it. He called it The Case and Cure of the Deserted Soul. That the answer to all of this is the promises of God. Now, in this experience that Thomas has, the whole focus of his deliverance is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the resurrection and the life. Oh, Peter would have tried to, tried to persuade him. He'd have been pretty blunt. And then John would have come along. Now, Thomas, he'd have put his arm around him. He'd have spent hours trying to convince him that they really had seen the risen Christ. Philip would have been there and Andrew and all the rest of the disciples. They would have done everything that they could. All of them failed. But the whole situation is transformed when Thomas encounters Jesus. And you know what? It's the same for you today if you're not yet a Christian. With the doubts that you have and the difficulties that you have and the struggles that you have and how people you know have prayed for you and have spoken to you maybe for years that you would come to know Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Saviour and put your faith in him but you can't. There is this doubt. There is this struggle. You feel you're locked up in Doubting Castle. Just as it was with, with Thomas. The solution is Christ himself. And that's what's so beautiful about this account. For it is Jesus who comes to Thomas. He will not leave Thomas at the mercy of his own thoughts and emotions. Wrestling with them on his own. And if your heart is set on finding Christ... The same Lord Jesus will not leave you in this state. In the upper room, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. And he came to Thomas and it was wonderful. The amazing thing is that when our hearts are set on knowing Christ, no matter how great our sense of unbelief is, no matter how deep our inward spiritual chaos may be, those words of Jesus are so true. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Are you laboring this morning with unbelief? Are you laboring under a terrible weight that says, I want to believe, but I can't believe? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Oh, there's rest for the body. There's rest for the mind. How wonderful it is to find that. But there is rest for the soul. You burdened and struggling today. There is rest for your soul in Jesus. The same one who says that when we come to him in faith, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If you're a Christian this morning and you're struggling with inward soul distress and difficulty and burdens, be comforted this morning. Jesus Christ will never leave you in that state. And it is Jesus who is Thomas's comfort. Thomas can only find comfort in Christ himself. And Jesus is the comforter of distressed human beings. He is not indifferent to us in our struggles. He is not hard. He does not fill his mind all the time with great sense of shame and disappointment about how pathetic we are as Christians. No. He is tender. He is the great restorer of our souls. I love these words in Isaiah 42. Words of prophecy concerning how Christ will be. He will not cry out or raise his voice. He will not be bombastic. He will not be angry. He will not be demanding. He will not be strident. And Isaiah right goes on, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He will not be a loud mouth. No, what will he be like? A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail. And so today, if your soul feels dry, bring your heart to Jesus Christ, who is more willing to meet with you than your tiny mind can ever begin to conceive. Don't let the busyness of life Become your focus. Don't try and find comfort simply in church and Christian behavior. Aim higher than that. Come to Christ. Because Jesus comes to bless and not condemn Thomas. I think it is the greatest thing of all here. Peace be to you. You little man who for three years have been with me 
and seen the remarkable things that I have done and heard my voice and you've had testimony for eight days, first-hand witnesses of my resurrection from the dead. What does he say to Thomas? Thomas, I am so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed of you. Thomas, I really thought better of you. I mean, after all, you were the one in the upper room saying, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? You were the who, you who were willing to go to Bethany and die with me. No, he doesn't do any of that. He simply says, peace be to you. You see, John, earlier on in this gospel, in the third chapter, in verse 17, said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I am so sorry if that's the message you've got sometimes from us as Christians. He didn't come to point his finger at us. So easy. The word of God already does that. The law of God does that. No, John records there in the 17th verse. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ's desire for you is that you delight in him. And so when Christ comes to Thomas, he is more aware of Christ than himself and he doesn't cry out, it's you, it's wonderful, thank you for answering my distress. He doesn't have any of that language. He simply says, my Lord and my God. He is utterly captivated by Christ. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus who by his death on the cross of Calvary has paid off the bill we've run up with God for our, for our, by our sins, and who by his resurrection from the dead, and who calls us today that when we see him and we experience him, he eclipses all of our sorrows, all of our distresses, so that all that we can see and know is Jesus. Well, as we close here this morning, you say again, but how does this really help me? I just so wish I was Thomas and had actually seen it. If I could only see, I'd believe. Well, right at the end of this, Jesus points the way out of the distress of doubt. He says to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. You see, that's Jesus' concern, that you might be believing. You might be a believer. Becoming a Christian isn't like sitting, some, sitting your A-levels or something horrendous like that. You know, where there's loads of questions and it's overwhelming sometimes. He is concerned that we might believe. I've come, he said, that you might have life. And this is true for us. And so Jesus actually talks about you this morning. I don't know if you noticed it, but you're in the passage. You say, I, I really? Yes, you are. Look at verse 29 and see yourself in the passage. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, his eye isn't just on Thomas. 
his eyes on someone like you and someone like me and people in the 21st century in these pandemic days. And he says there will be those who don't see in the way in which you saw, but they will also believe in the way in which you believe. And they are blessed. And at which point, because you're a thinking person, you say, well, how on earth does that happen? If I can't be expected to see the risen Christ in the way in which Thomas saw it, well, well, what am I supposed to do? What, what, is there anything that can substitute for this? And you know what there is. Verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Love to know what they were, wouldn't you? But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Encounter Christ through the words of the book, through the words of the scripture, and incidents like this. These are written that you might believe. Christ's concern is that you should believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Do you believe?